This week I did something I never imagined doing. I logged onto the New York Times, entered my age, my job, the county I live in, and some information about my health. And the website gave me a number. It told me roughly how long I might have to wait to get the coronavirus vaccine. Now, there's a long line of people who need to get the vaccine, but for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic, it looks like the end could be in sight. I'm Laura Marsh. I'm the literary editor of The New Republic. And I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at the magazine. This week, we talked to a range of experts about how pandemics end. How long will it take to distribute the vaccine? And when will life get back to something like normal? So, Alex, do you know where you are in line for the vaccine? I did the New York Times thing just sort of idly, and it confirmed that I'm towards the back. I don't actually remember, like, what the number like was. 290 million <laughs> Yeah, it was line. like, you're going to be waiting a while. It is interesting, because you, you mentioned you enter your employment, or what your job is, and by certain definitions, including in, in New York, journalists are essential workers. I don't particularly think I need to jump the line to, to mm-hmm. for example, do this podcast, but <laughs> we'll see if I might get the opportunity to. <laughs> right. I did not check that box in the, in the little <laughs> quiz. I just, I, I didn't check that box. Thankfully, the quiz was not legally binding. <laughs> no, but it's interesting because it's one way of thinking about what could happen next. And I have no roadmap at all for understanding what the next year is going to be like. Like, when is the next first time I'm going to get in the subway? When is the first time I'm going to go back into the office? Mm-hmm. So I would love someone to just be able to tell me, like, this is the date when you should expect to be able to like cross these benchmarks. This is when you might feel normal again. Well, so our first guest is Dr. Nicholas Christakis. He's a physician and sociologist at Yale University and the author of a book about the long-term effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Nicholas, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Laura and, and Alex. So I guess our first question is <laughs> a big one. How long do you think it would take the U.S. to reach a turning point in the fight against covid Well, I think there'll be two landmark turning points. One will occur sometime at the beginning of 2022, about a year from now. And the next one will occur sometime at the beginning of 2024, hence about uh, three years from now. And to explain why those landmarks occur as they do, I'd have to go on a bit of a digression. I don't know whether you want me to go on that digression to talk about herd immunity. Please do, yeah. Yeah, I think think that's good. So when we're heading out on this digression, can you just define herd immunity. I think it's a term we've all heard a lot in the last year, but exactly what is it? Yeah. So with that technical knowledge out of the way, then we can look at these important landmarks that you asked me about. So pathogens like SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, have a number of intrinsic properties, for example, how deadly they are, and other properties as well. One of those properties is how infectious they are. That is to say, what is the ability of the pathogen, of the germ, to spread from one person to another and cause new cases for every existing case? And for coronavirus, for this coronavirus, every case can cause three new cases. And that's actually pretty infectious. That's that's a serious uh, disease. And just to benchmark you, the seasonal flu recreates itself plus another half a case, whereas SARS-CoV-2 creates three new cases. Well, you can take this number and then use a formula to compute something known as the herd immunity threshold. It's the percentage of people that need to be immune in a population such that even though not everyone is immune, 
you can't get epidemics anymore. So probably the natural herd immunity threshold for SARS-CoV-2 is about 50%. If we get to 50% of people being infected, then we've reached this milestone. Okay, that's the background about what herd immunity is. It's the ability of a population to be immune to a condition, even when not everyone is immune, and it's a minimum percentage of people that have to be immune as individuals, such that the epidemic force of the pathogen has been stopped. So the question I have is, is the 2022 benchmark, is that the herd immunity? Yes, exactly. So (laughs) how are we going to get there? So right now we have these vaccines invented, which is miraculous, like 10 months after the germ left us, unprecedented in human history. But it's going to take time for us to manufacture millions of doses of this vaccine, distribute those doses, which won't be easy. Many of the vaccines need to be kept in serious cold temperatures in specialized freezers, for example, and then persuade people to take the vaccine. And there's a lot of people who are afraid to take the vaccine or have maybe some legitimate concerns, let's say, about the safety of the vaccine. So we have our work cut out for us to persuade the American public. But anyway, that's going to take time. We'll be at the end of 2021, maybe the beginning of 2022, before we finally have vaccinated, let's say, 50% of the American public. But meanwhile, the virus is spreading. Right now, probably only about 13% of Americans have been infected, and we're rapidly adding about half a percent or 1% of Americans every couple of weeks. So by a year from now, we're going to reach herd immunity naturally if we don't reach it artificially because of the vaccine. So for my desk, Either way, 2022, the beginning of 2022 is a milestone in the history of this global pandemic. That's when I feel will be the end of the immediate pandemic period. So does that mean even with herd immunity, those 50% of people who aren't vaccinated, they can still get the virus? It's just less likely, much less likely. Yes, that's right. I mean, the point is when you reach herd immunity, you haven't eradicated the virus. The virus is still around. In fact, the virus will be with us forever but its epidemic force will have been sapped. So you threw out another date there, 2024, and what turning point do you envision happening so three years from now? Yeah, right. Just because we have now left the biological and epidemiological impact of the, uh, the you know, initial impact of the, of the pandemic behind us, we still have to recover socially, economically, psychologically, even clinically. Because unfortunately, because of the pathetically bad job we have done as a nation in confronting this epidemic, at least half a million Americans are likely to die before the epidemic is over. But in addition to all the people that die, roughly five times as many will be disabled. So if half a million Americans die, about 2.5 million Americans will have some form of long-term disability, pulmonary fibrosis, renal insufficiency, neurological deficits, maybe some cardiac problems. And so And so we also will have to recover after the force of the epidemic has hit us, we will have a clinical recovery. We will have to cope with the disability. So that time period between 2022 and say 2024, which I call the intermediate period, is the time in which if you look at historical epidemics, it takes the population to recover economically, socially, psychologically, and clinically. And then we'll get to the next milestone when the post-pandemic period will begin. We don't know for certain yet how long immunity lasts, right? Could the COVID-19 vaccine become like a flu shot thing where you get it regularly? It's possible. If I had to guess, I think immunity will be sustained. 
The reasons that you need your flu shot repeatedly have to do with the ability of influenza to mutate through recombination in a very particular way, which is generally not what we see with the coronavirus. And looking at certain other biological evidence regarding coronavirus species in animals and so on, I think there will be some significant and sustained immunity. Over a few decades, I think this coronavirus is going to wind up being just another cold virus in our species where you will be exposed to it as a child. We know that children are relatively unaffected by this virus. After exposure as a child, you'll develop some kind of immunity. Then if you're re-exposed as an adult, you just have a common cold and it's not lethal. And now since the virus is circulating, children will just get it naturally when they're young. And that'll be how our species comes to a detente in the end with SARS-CoV-2. One thing I want to ask you about is this immediate period, so the next year, it's so hard for me to imagine how that's going to unfold. Obviously, we were plunged into the pandemic. No one, well, people like you maybe saw it coming, but ordinary people like me and Alex didn't know the coronavirus (laughs) pandemic was coming. There wasn't that much time to adjust. And something I've been thinking about a lot is how we emerge from this pandemic, because it's going to happen slowly. There isn't going to be a week where everyone goes back to work suddenly As a sociologist, how do you envision the next year? What kinds of changes do you think we'll see in the way that people start moving around again? No, I don't think that's going to happen in the next year. I think in the next year, we're going to still live in the kind of way we've been living. I think we're nowhere near herd immunity. The vaccine is going to have a certain rollout. I think we're going to be wearing masks. I think we're going to be physical distancing. I think a lot of people are going to be working from home. And just to be clear, we actually don't know if this vaccine prevents death. We just know that it prevents illness. And initially in the Pfizer trial, we didn't even know if it prevented serious illness. And we also don't know if this is not enough. All these people listening, oh my God, the vaccine is here, hallelujah. And it's great. (laughs) It's great that we have the vaccine, but you got to think more clearly about this. We don't know if the vaccine stops you from spreading it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just going to ask, because what we're testing is to see if it prevents serious symptoms. We don't know if it prevents infection, and, and then you are still a contagious person even after vaccination. Yes, exactly. Now, we know in the AstraZeneca trial, they very smartly tested the family members of people who were randomized to get the vaccine or not. Actually, I'm not totally up to date on the details of these trials, but my understanding is that the AstraZeneca vaccine may reduce infectiousness. So it's possible we would vaccinate all these people, which is great, but it might not actually stop, you know, have the same impact on the pandemic. So there's lots we don't know. And finally, if that's not enough, we don't know how safe this vaccine is. We know it's safe in a population of 40,000 or or in the Moderna trials, about 30,000 people, about the same in the two trials. But we don't really know how truly safe it is until we roll it out and start giving it to millions of people. I just want to say, I do not want to be taken as a cynic or a pessimist. I think it's miraculous and amazing that we have developed this vaccine and we can talk about what that means in the history of epidemics. But I also want listeners to understand that, you know, it's it's not an instantaneous panacea for all the reasons we've been discussing. Right. So we've talked about the next year, and then I'm thinking about the next few years. You say that we should expect to see people's behaviors change in a lasting way. Are there examples that you can think of of previous pandemics, previous plagues even, where the way people act has actually changed significantly? One of the toy examples I like to give about this is spittoons. At the turn of the prior century, around 1900, 
there were tuberculosis outbreaks in this country and public spitting was rightly seen as very unsanitary. And then this so-called Spanish flu struck in 1918. And at the time, not only was public spitting not uncommon, but every restaurant had a little brass bucket in it called a spittoon that you could spit in. It's really gross, like accumulating big buckets of spit over the course of a day. And people got rid of these because we don't want people spitting in our restaurants. <laughs> and, and after the epidemic was over, the spittoons didn't come back. Like none of us listening to this have ever been to a restaurant you know, where we're like, where, where is the spittoon? You know, I, I want my spittoon back. <laughs> is there something in the 21st century that resembles a spittoon, but we're so used to it that we don't see it as disgustingly unhygienic? Well, I don't think handshaking is as disgusting as public spitting, but I do think there's a possibility <laughs> that handshaking may go the way of spittoons. You know, there are different ways of greeting each other in different cultures, in Europe and in the United States, we shake hands. Sometimes we hug strangers even when you first meet them. It's uncommon, but certainly we shake hands. But in many other parts of the world, people bow, they clasp their hands together, and they don't have physical contact. Right. As a socially awkward English person, I prefer to stand about six feet away from the person and just wave <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> to greet them. No warmth. Exactly. No physical so fact, contact. Yeah, the, the future is going to favor you hugely, Lara. But the point is, it's possible. I actually don't think it's likely uh, that we will abandon handshaking in Western countries, but I think it'll be much less common. And it won't be seen as weird if people don't want to shake your hands 10 years from now. So the, the spittoon and the handshaking are interesting examples, but there could be more subtle. And, and many people are talking about like how working from home will be persistent and business travel will be less common. You know, people aren't going to fly across the country for a trivial meeting, but there could be other larger scale and more subtle effects. Let me give you an example. So it is still the case in our country that most couples are heterosexual. Of course, we have homosexual couples. We also have single family head of households, you know, single parents. And in most heterosexual couples, it's still the case on average that men make more money than women, on average. Let's consider what's happening in a situation in which we have a radical shock to our economy, tens of millions of people are out of work, and schools are closed. So a couple sits around the kitchen table and they're thinking, what should we do? Kids are stuck at home, people are losing their jobs, and they make the very rational decision that the man should stay in the workforce because he was earning more money, and the woman should stay at home with the children. Every couple can make their own decisions about what they're going to do with their own lives. That's their own business. But if millions of couples make the same decision, we may find after the pandemic that women's labor market participation has been set back 20 years, right? So that might be an effect as well, a long-term effect that could happen. Do you think in the West, mask wearing will become commonplace like for, for flu season or just for in general? I think, no, if I had to guess, no. I think people will be so relieved to get rid of masks in two or three years <laughs> that I think they'll stop. But I think the threshold for reusing them will be low. You know, so if yeah. you read in the newspaper, flu season is forecast to be bad, you know, or whatever you know, you'll have had the experience of wearing a mask for two years. And so you'll say, okay, I'll wear a mask for a month. It's not a big deal. You'll have, here it is right here in my drawer. I mean, it, the culture will change around it, I think. Yes. Well, this is somewhere I'm curious about the historical precedent, because I was so surprised to find out that in the Spanish flu of the early 20th century, people were wearing masks. Do you have any sense of how that practice was lost? Why didn't we keep doing it then? Well, there were huge debates about mask wearing in 1918, very similar to the debates we're having now. However, the pro-mask group sort of won out in part because they were able to frame mask wearing as a patriotic duty. 
I actually think that one of the things that upsets me so much about the framing of this pandemic, the political framing, is that acts which should have been seen as really apolitical, like mask, you wear a mask because it's a physical barrier for droplets. It's not a sign of your virtue. It's not, you know, like, oh, I'm a, I'm, I wear a mask. That means I'm a good person. I'm concerned about my community. Nor is it a sign of your freedom. Like, I refuse to wear a mask because, you know, I don't want the government telling me what to do. These are silly framings of a mask. It's just a tool to reduce infection. And I think what we should have done is we should have framed mask wearing as a kind of least noxious thing we could do to cope with a pandemic. Like we should have said, look, if you wear masks, if you physical distance, if you avoid big gatherings, you can keep your schools open. You can save lives. And in the 1918 pandemic, that was the framing, that we needed to keep our troops fit for battle for the First World War, that mask wearing reduced infection. It was also something people could do on the home front. You know, our young men were dying on the front. The, all we're asking from you is to have a victory garden and to wear a mask, you know? So step up and be patriotic. So let's hope by 2024, let's say that we've emerged from this and we're able to try and put some of the worst of coronavirus behind us. Do we need to worry that something like this is going to happen again in the next five or 10 years? I mean, it might not be COVID, it might be a completely new virus, but should we be worrying that the world could stop again because of another pandemic? So Tony Fauci, who was writing about respiratory pandemics when I was in elementary school, wrote a paper that looked at the history of respiratory pandemics for the last 300 years. And in this paper, he and others have shown that respiratory pandemics come every 10 to 20 years. And most listeners won't remember these pandemics, often because they're not very deadly. So only every 50 or 100 years that we get a really serious one, like the one we're facing right now, this pandemic that we're facing right now, in the end, will be the second worst pandemic we faced in 100 years, worse than the 1957 influenza pandemic, which was the previous second place record holder, but not as bad as the 1918 pandemic. But the point is, this is stochastic. That is to say, it's random. On average, pandemics come every 10 or 20 years, but that's not a rule. They could come every year for a while. And on average, you get a serious one every 50 or 100 years, but that's not a rule. You could get another serious one in five or 10 years just by chance. So absolutely, we should be prepared. But see, the problem was we were prepared. There was a playbook for managing a pandemic that was given to the Trump administration by the Obama administration, which I think inherited from the Bush administration. We just didn't act we did not act as a nation. We, we have goofed at every step. We goofed on testing. We goofed on public messaging. We goofed on PPE. We goofed on contact tracing. I mean, we have just not as a nation risen to the challenge. So I hope that the next time we as a nation face this, perhaps because of the unpleasant memories of what we've just experienced, we'll do better. I also hope we do better next time. It would, seems like in many respects, it would be hard to do worse. <laughs> um, on that note, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Nicholas. Thank you both so much for having me. Dr. Nicholas Christakis's new book is Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. After a short break, we'll be joined by Rebecca Coyle from the American Immunization Registry Association and author and frequent New Republic contributor Melody Schreiber. The distribution of a COVID-19 vaccine might be the single greatest public health challenge in our nation's history. Joining us to talk about the policy decisions surrounding vaccine distribution are New Republic contributor Melody Schreiber, 
whose latest piece is titled, So You Won't Get an Early COVID-19 Vaccine, That's Okay, and Rebecca Coyle, Executive Director of the American Immunization Registry Association. Hi, Melody. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Hi, thank you for having us. Thank you for having me. Rebecca, tell me a little bit about your organization, the American Immunization Registry Association, and what it has been, uh, I guess, doing around the COVID-19 vaccine preparation. So ERA was birthed back in 1999 out of a need to pull folks together to solve problems more nationally than than locally. And while immunization information systems or registries, as they're often called, are are really tools for state and local health departments, there is a need for them to act and respond consistently across the U.S. When you're not responding to a global pandemic, what does ERA usually do? If you think back in time, most often as a child, you were given a yellow card, a piece of paper. It was noted on that piece of paper what vaccine you received at the date you received it, and then when you probably need to come back for your next dose. So there's a way uh, for immunization registries to capture all of that and provide a consolidated record. So it's sort of taking that yellow card and digitizing it um, in a way that's meaningful and can follow somebody regardless of, of what provider they're accessing. For the average person out there who's thinking about when they might get their vaccine or wondering and worrying about what the challenges might be, if you just had to tell them very simply like what your organization hopes to do to make that easier, what would you say to them? My organization is working with all the states that operate a system. So right now we are working with them to develop the data specifications or the data file that needs to be extracted on a a daily basis and sent up to the federal government so they can look broadly across the U.S. to see, you know, how many vaccines are out there, how many doses of, you know, vaccine A, how many doses of vaccine B have, have been administered for planning purposes. And then I think just also verification that doses that have been shipped are actually being administered. I actually, I want to back up a little bit here because I think this is sort of interesting. You're talking about your organization works with all of these state and local governments that operate their own immunization information systems or registries of people who have been vaccinated. Is the American system of that sort of patchwork of vaccine registries unique? Do other countries track this more universally? So that's a great question. And I think this is one of those where, you know, we have a federated approach to everything in this country. That's sort of how we were built. And that's why we have this patchwork approach. There are other countries that have a single system for their country, recognizing that oftentimes some of these countries are the size of one of our states. There are also other countries like Canada is a great example, where they also have a more federated approach. So there's a combination of of things out there. So I think, you know, just at the core, it's important to recognize that all states but one, which is New Hampshire, operate a system. And then in addition to the states, there are also large cities like New York City, Philadelphia that operate a system. One question I have is there are all these different systems. Some of them sound like they probably work really well, but it's unclear sort of how they fit together. What's the danger that people might fall through the cracks? Where are the weaknesses there? So I think some of the concerns might be for somebody that may have moved, particularly if they've received the first dose in one state and moved between the first dose and second dose, there's concern that that first dose won't necessarily be known by the new state. 
So there are some technology solutions that will allow jurisdiction states system to figure out, you know, what did that person really receive for the first vaccine dose. So the rollout of the vaccine is interesting because I think, I, I, I know that certainly during these last several months, I have been focused on there being a vaccine and thinking that will be kind of the light at the end of the tunnel. But the rollout is uneven, you know, it depends how people adopt it. It depends what states do. And Melody, you've written about the order in which individuals may actually get this vaccine. So the order will be determined by the CDC, by a committee of experts from across the country. And the order is going to be first health workers, and the, including people who work in care facilities. And then the people who live in the care facilities, that just makes sense. It's where the prevalence of death is highest. So after that first phase, the committee will meet again to continue making recommendations on the next phase. So they haven't actually come up with a full order of its group A, then group B, then group C, then group D. What I have in front of me is the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine, and they have recommendations where they'll likely go. But it's not as if the government has said, we've committed to laying everything out in this exact order. Is that correct? That's correct. And part of that is because we're still getting the data on the vaccine. If we discover that the vaccine just doesn't work as well among the elderly, the recommendations are going to be put this vaccine toward the elderly and put this vaccine toward people who work in schools. So as that data comes out, then they'll have a better idea of where it's going. What the CDC has come up with and is going to send to the states is recommendations, and the states will ultimately determine sort of how they will distribute it and what the order will be. That's correct. So, for example, that could mean it could be different in different parts of the country, right? Because there was a story that I I think might have just been a sort of overblown Twitter reaction to a headline, but might have had some more basis to it. I'm actually not sure about essential workers in New York. That could include uh, employees of financial firms, right? Because, I mean, under New York's rules, Laura and I are essential workers (laughs) because we're in the media. And we were, it's true, because we were allowed to like go to work to do reporting during lockdown. It's such a shame that this is audio because if you could see my face... As, as much as I love this podcast, it definitely doesn't feel like it should have put us first in line for a vaccine. Right. You're essential in my heart. Um. But I don't like. But we don't. We don't know yet whether or not New York State will determine that us podcasting journalists will get to be <laughs> higher up on the list than than preschool teachers or something, right? So the CDC will make the recommendations. It's always going to be up to the states to follow those recommendations and to interpret them. So you say health workers. Does that mean? health workers in clinics? Does it mean health workers who go and visit people's homes? Quite a bit of it's going to depend on how many of each category you have in each state and how many doses you get. The vaccine is being allocated based on population, not on need per se, but on the number of people and how many doses they have. So in Alaska, for instance, if they have enough to cover all of their healthcare staff and all of the people living in care facilities, who goes next? And the states will be determining that. And then, yeah, how you define essential worker is going to be a huge debate. (laughs) If you're an ordinary person, it's natural to sort of wonder, well, when would I get this, right? And you can even go on the New York Times website and they've made a kind of little interactive feature. It will sort of tell you, you know, you're in line behind 90 million people. So what does that really mean? Well, from the first shot that goes into the arm of a health worker, I'm going to start being protected. 
you know, these health workers are keeping hospitals going. They're caring for people who are getting sick. They need to absolutely be protected first. Right. It's like I'm waiting in line overnight for the I want my grandma to stay alive store and for me to not get COVID. I want that store to open at at 8 a.m. And there's 90 million people in front of me. But each person who gets in there, like, makes the likelihood of me getting what I want from the store more likely. Right. They're going to have a circle around me that protects me because they're suddenly a lot more protected. And so that's going to protect me long before I get a shot. And honestly, I'm not just waiting in line for a vaccination. I'm waiting in line, like you said, for my parents to be protected, for people I know who have pre-existing conditions. Honestly, looking at my risk factors, if I were to get sick, it would probably be pretty mild. So I don't worry about me getting sick. I worry about other people getting sick. And those people who are at high risk, they need to be way ahead of me. And I'm totally fine with that. We've been talking about the order in which the government is deciding people will receive the vaccine. We have been also talking about it as if people will then go take it when it's their turn on the list. Rebecca, you know about these vaccine registries, and I think... Do people have privacy concerns about effectively the government making a list of what people have what vaccines? That is a great question, and I think it is absolutely one of the concerns that we know people have about their data and and making sure that only the right people have access to that. I think that's been one of the fundamental principles across immunization information systems or registries. We know that there are a couple of states that still have an opt-in requirement, meaning that in order for the information to go into the registry, somebody has to sign explicit consent to go into the system. Most of our systems operate on an opt-out basis, meaning that if your information is in there and you don't want it there, you can request to have it removed. And having worked in a state and actually switching from an opt-in to an opt-out platform, the reason why we did that is we found that for most parents that had to opt in at birth, you know, we were getting about 90% of parents saying, yes, we want our kids included in this registry. And over the course of the, the first year of life, we were actually finding that virtually all children we're going in. At the core, I think privacy is a huge concern. That's why we want to make sure that only the people that are authenticated that should have access to these systems do in fact have access to the systems. It's why this data doesn't get broadly shared across the board. It's it's very controlled and, and, and very regulated. I guess maybe even just speaking personally, how worried are you in this information environment that I I guess, conspiratorial thinking about these lists is going to actually hamper delivery of the vaccine. So I would like to think that it won't hamper that. However, I do think there are some unique considerations with this particular rollout that haven't existed before. And to say that I'm not concerned about them, I I think is not accurate. So we know that in this vaccine rollout, as I mentioned, there are some new data exchange components that haven't existed before. So that being immunization information systems or states are supposed to send their identifiable information up to CDC. And I think that is something that we have really questioned, you know, at the core, you know, is there a reason for that? How is that data going to be utilized? There's nothing that the federal government is going to be able to do that the states can't do themselves. I think, and that's the key piece. States have been doing this for a long time. What we haven't been doing is sending data to the federal government for them to deduplicate, consolidate, and and monitor and maintain. That just hasn't happened. And I do think that presents some risk from a privacy perspective, but then also from a, a data flow perspective. 
I want to go back to something Melody mentioned, which is that there is not just one vaccine. There are a couple different vaccines. They all have to be stored at different temperatures, so they kind of require different supply chains in order to reach people. Does that make things more complicated, or is that something we're used to seeing with vaccines? So the good news is from a vaccine perspective, this is just another vaccine. We already have the systems in place for a variety of different combinations. For the most part, as of now, the, the vaccines are really two-dose vaccines. That's that's very comparable to, to most of the vaccines that we have out there. In fact, it's more rare to have a vaccine that only requires one dose. So there are some added complications, but I, I don't think it's going to be as challenging as everyone might think it is. Melody, with there being several different vaccines for COVID, how do you think that will affect the way the public thinks about getting the vaccine? For instance, should someone be concerned if they get the Pfizer vaccine instead of the Moderna one? Is there any difference between them? How much do we know about it? So far, with what we know, I, I don't think we can really say that what the differences between Pfizer and Moderna are. I think as more of the data is released, we'll have a better idea. I think knowing which one you got will be uh, important for knowing when you follow up in the second dose that you get, making sure you go to the right place. The, the other issue that I'm following quite closely is if there's a vaccine that's not as effective, but is easier to administer. There are questions about equity in rural areas across the world. If a vaccine is more effective but harder to administer, who gets it and how do we make those decisions? Right, because if the one that needs to be kept in super cold storage, it seems like you're more likely to get that if you live near a hospital that has really high-tech, expensive facilities versus if you live further away from that kind of facility and you might end up getting the one that doesn't need such special treatment. You know, that actually gets to something we talked about in our in our meeting about this episode, which is that there's a ton of things we can be doing, and I, I say we, meaning both sort of the federal government, meaning the state government, meaning city governments, and then meaning the individual too. There's a ton of things that we could be doing that are often not being done that could be making things a lot easier right now. To what degree is the fact that soon there will be vaccine... Do you think that is causing politicians to say, well, I don't need to do any of that hard stuff like closing things back down. I don't have to do that because the vaccine's right around the corner? Yeah, I do think that's the temptation among politicians, but also among you know everyday people. They're, you know, the end is in sight, but we just have to hold on because it's going to get way worse before it gets better. I mean, the light is at the end of the tunnel. It's just... We're still not there yet. We've, we've, we're still in the middle of the tunnel. Every day that we have the opportunity to take precautionary measures and to curb the spread, we, we still have in our power the, the ability to make a difference before a vaccine ever arrives. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. This has really been a fun and very different from my normal day, so I appreciate that. Rebecca Coyle is the executive director of the American Immunization Registry Association, and Melody Schreiber's latest piece for The New Republic is titled, So You Won't Get an Early COVID-19 Vaccine. That's okay. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Keenan Kush produced this episode. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.